Welcome to the Innovation of Work podcast. I have a wonderful guest today, Ryan Larkham, who's the Director of, of Innovation at High Alpha. And uh, we have worked together for a very long time, uh, can probably finish, finish each other's sentences. So I'm, I'm excited to get into a, a really deep conversation with Ryan today about in, innovation. So uh, welcome, Ryan. Uh, glad to have you as a guest today. Really excited to be here. Thanks, Robin. Yeah. So uh, let's start with a bit about your origin story, which is actually very interesting how you made your way to innovation. So you've got a mechanical engineering and an industrial design background. You had study abroad. You had some pretty phenomenal internships and uh, really a, a really fantastic role with a global power leader. So can you give us a bit about your origin story and how that kind of paved the way for your, your focus on innovation today? Yeah, for sure. Um, grew up in Connecticut uh, and I just loved inventing things as a kid. And so when it came time to figure out what I wanted to do for college, um, mechanical engineers were the only people I knew really that knew how to, how to make stuff. So went to college, uh, halfway through, I realized engineering was just beating the living creativity out of me and uh, how to figure out um, kind of where else for that creativity. And industrial designers, it turned out, had it right. When you uh, design a product with a person in mind, you get something that's delightful. You know, when you design a product with specifications in mind, you get more junk and, and goodness knows we don't need more junk in the world. So um, I had a chance to combine those degrees together had a really awesome internship with Continuum, uh, one of the big IDEO competitors out there that really kind of was formative in the way that I began thinking about the combination of those degrees. And uh, I really wanted a role that combined the two together. And, uh, but I knew that like, unlike the, the amazing artists and conceptualizers that designers were, my job was taking that and trying to figure out how to make those things real and uh, using my engineering and analytical skills to do that. So. This was just post IDEO's design thinking movement. Uh, sadly, Big Co's had not really adopted that thinking yet, um, which was kind of the beginning of my early struggles and what ultimately led me to, to want to make innovation better for Big Co's. No, I love that. I love the fact that you really came to the conclusion that you really need to focus on the person and the people uh, versus just the specifications. I think a, a lot of us have been there where you end up building the wrong product or a product that really doesn't resonate with the end user. So. I love that. So, all right. So you also have a very interesting journey from, from corporate to innovation to corporate and, and back again. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about kind of what that journey has been like and, and some of the roles that you've played and, and how you landed kind of where you are today? Yeah, my, my first decade was really with the industrials. Uh, first job with Honda and then with Cummins. Um, you know, Honda was really unique because the designer owned the product from end to end. So as a design engineer, I got to learn a lot about the breadth of what it took to design a product from marketing to manufacturing to customer facing roles. It was, it was really, really interesting. Um, when I was at Cummins though, like, right, you're, you're about five years into your career, you've done a lot of designing and you're just realizing that things aren't working in the way that they should, uh, that innovations really aren't reaching people or at best they're incremental innovation. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had this really interesting opportunity to move in corporate strategy and um, why I took it was honestly, like I, I didn't feel like engineers got listened to. Business people did and corporate strat was an opportunity for me to be able um, to kind of speak to a louder audience. Um, Ironically, I kind of learned a totally different set of things while I was in Corp Strat, which was that um, 
you know, I used to think, you know, engineering and industrial design was kind of my intersection, right? Making products that people love. Right. I also realized though that most folks didn't know how to create something from nothing, period, kind of irrespective of, of background. And so while I picked up a ton of new business skills, what I realized for myself was just that I could create net new things instead of operate existing businesses. And so that was really what kind of set me on the trajectory of um, creating net new things for corporations. So I had this really cool inflection point where uh, High Alpha was forming, right? One of the early days I was employee number six and they really gave me the sandbox to, to play in. I said, hey, we need to create 12 new companies in the next three years. We've got to figure out a way to go do that. And so uh, I was able to put to the test a lot of the theories and theses I had seen from uh, not just my, my roles, but then my internship before that of what worked and what didn't around innovation and really develop this process for moving from idea through, uh, through company, right, over time. Um, you know, at the end of the second fund of High Alpha, we had really gained, a, or first fund of High Alpha, really gained a lot of conviction around this idea of um, entrepreneur plus idea equals a really, really cool uh, company. Felt like corporations needed this too, right? R&D and M&A just aren't working for corporations in, in as meaningful a way as they used to. And, um, we ought to help corporations to start new startups. And it was through one of those early corporate uh, uh, partnerships with Allegion that I, I kind of fell in love with their CEO's vision of knowing companies, uh, their companies, customers better, and then delighting products uh, and, and processes for, for their people there. So I um, decided to jump over to Allegion to help lead their innovation efforts there. Uh, as well. So back and forth, right? Like the, the, <laughs> yeah. the cool opportunity for me was like, could I take what I had learned in high alpha with my background for innovation and then apply it in the context of a new, of, of a, of a traditional size big company. Yeah. And um, I did, you know, we had, we had six really, really good months. COVID unfortunately, you know, created a premature halt to most innovation activity in the sure. world. Um, and, and so that was a disappointment. But I think the, the exciting part of coming back to high alpha innovation now is that I get to partner with corporations of all sizes and shapes and uh, really help to uplevel them with respect to how they, uh, they innovate. I also am able to stay a little bit more on the edge of innovation, right? The, the, the bleeding edge of what it is to launch new companies rather than perhaps like in the center of the core where I began, which is like, how do you move innovation forward inside of these really, really big goes? Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so much to unpack there. Well, let's, let's start with kind of high alpha innovation. What, what is high? Maybe we start with what is high alpha? What is high alpha innovation? Can you give us some insight into kind of how, how you guys operate in, and maybe even uh, if, if possible, any insight into what you're currently working on? Let's start with High Alpha and then we'll move over to High Alpha Innovation. So um, High Alpha is a venture studio and we really pioneered the venture studio model. Um, so venture studio is a startup uh, incubator with a VC attached to it. Um, startup incubators have been around for ages. Uh, there's some really notable ones in, in science and Betaworks and, and uh, ID Lab and a number of others, but they partner with entrepreneurs. Uh, at the earliest stages of their businesses, and then they provide them with some kind of shared services to help those companies grow and scale. Uh, our accidental innovation was strapping a VC fund next to it. Uh, and, and there were a lot of good reasons for that, right? Uh, Indianapolis is not a capital efficient place. Uh, it also though helped us to build relationships with other VCs by uh, helping us to invest in, in their companies and vice versa. And it helped us to, to lead and syndicate some of the rounds of our own company. So it was a really interesting kind of innovation that led us to this idea of a venture studio model. Um, so I, I think there's, there's uh, 
there's a lot of learning still going on inside of venture studios, but we've seen the proliferation of over 500 venture studios and, and startup incubators worldwide now. So yeah. there, there is a there there, and we're trying to figure that out over the next several uh, years here. High Alpha Innovation spun out of High Alpha almost in response to the innovator's dilemma. You, know, you think about venture studio models, they, they raise a fund that lasts for three to four years at a time. And um, during that period of time, uh, you're launching new companies, right? One after the next. But really the only thing you can do on your own model is incremental. Right. We can tweak our process a little bit, we can tweak our people a little bit. Uh, we can tweak how we launch and fund new companies, but there's, there's no big step function changes that can occur during the course of that fund. At High Alpha Innovation, what we're, we're looking at is starting 10 new venture studios over the next five years and partnering with corporations and organizations of all kinds to launch 100 companies in the next five years. And we think if we do that, then what we can do is really uh, learn from all the various different iterations of what it takes to launch new companies, how each of these venture studios begin to, to learn and change and proliferate, ultimately hoping that we can feed back to the high alpha model so that we can become a smarter venture studio and push the venture studio model forward. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, did you say 100 new companies? hundred new companies in five years. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a wow. tremendous a, a number of companies. So it also exciting as well. So let's, let's talk about corporate innovation a little bit more. Can you give us some color on when corporates and maybe corporate innovation, or maybe we back up where in a corporate should they think about innovation? And if they've got an innovation team, what should they be thinking about in terms of launching startups? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great place to start. So to begin with, I think corporate innovation teams need to be thinking about a portfolio approach, right? With a really clear business strategy on the front end, where does the company want to be in the next 10 years and what are their levers to pull to be able to get there? You have an innovation portfolio and the portfolio is traditionally thought about with R&D first, right? And, and there ought to be a significant amount of R&D dollars that are expended in corporations. And then M&A second is often the next most popular. But what we've been finding is that R&D and M&A are becoming less and less efficient over the last several decades. Uh, and that there, there needs to be new levers of growth for corporations, especially in environments like this, where there's a ton of free capital around, but we're not getting the type of lift that corporates want to be able to see uh, to keep them uh, you know, publicly competitive. So you know, we believe that there's actually a third rung to innovation portfolios, which is startups. And um, you could even break down that further if you wanted to, to kind of a build by partner. Uh, we've seen kind of the most progressive organizations who understand a startup approach, looking at uh, corporate venture capital, right, as a way to invest in companies that are in adjacencies that they need to learn from, uh, partnerships so that they can drive discrete revenue back and forth between themselves and those companies, but then also building. And, and that's the place that I'm most interested in, because at High Alpha Innovation, we believe that when you partner with startups, you can learn a lot faster than you ever could otherwise. Uh, startups are learning models effectively and uh, that those engines continue to learn for seven to 10 years while they continue to grow up into big meaningful businesses. So when you think about innovation and um, you know where you ought to be spending portfolio dollars, while it's probably the smallest amount uh, allocated there, I believe a building function is essential inside of big companies. Um, and you could build to learn. Um, you, you could imagine Coca-Cola, for example, wanting to know about the future of autonomous supply chains, right? right. Uh, Coke's not an autonomous company, but they ought to be building to learn about the future of supply chains. Um, you could be thinking about building to hedge. Um, 
Lemonade, the, the very famous insurance company, should have been spun out from traditional insurance, right? Uh, that in order to find new business models, if they had launched something outside the core to hedge against their own R&D, they would have had optionality in the future. Right. Or you can think about building to build faster. Dollar Shave Club should have been built outside P&G to find a new model for direct to consumer, right? Otherwise, P&G has to go and acquire those businesses when they're really, really expensive. But yeah. that's the way that I think about building startups is uh, learning hedging and building faster. No, that's great. And that's a good segue into, all right, so we think about some of the should have, they should have done this and they could have done this. What are some of the red flags that, you know, you maybe you've seen in your experience that would indicate that a company is not ready to launch a startup or maybe um, they need more expertise before they really try to innovate either internally in a startup fashion or externally? Yeah, it's, it's a, a sense that I've been trying to hone now for the last 10 years, right? As a corporate innovator, the most dangerous thing you can do is uh, jump into a company that has innovation as a value hanging on the wall only to get fired two years later when you <laughs> try to do something and, and yeah. they, it turns out it's not real, right? Yeah. You got to be able to dig below innovation as a value and really quantify that. So I'd say kind of four things, right? The first is you got to have a clear tie to business strategy. What is the company attempting to do? And how are they going to go about doing that? It's, um, it's a shame to watch business leaders who are operating cash cows right inside of larger businesses dump money into R&D, right? Cash cows are supposed to be milked, right? Until they, yeah. until they go dry and then you exit that, that business. And so having a clear understanding of what your business model is, where it is in its business maturity and how you're gonna go about getting growth is essential on the front end because all innovation strategy pulls from corporate strategy. Mm -hmm. um, the next is governance. Uh, we need a small decision-making body uh, with a clear and delegated authority from the CEO. So uh, it's easy to want to include everybody and their brother and make sure that this is palatable to the entire organization. But uh, we find that batching decisions with a small group of individuals with clear delegated authority really helps that company to go fast. The third is a pool of capital. Uh, Typically, companies invest off the balance sheet, and, and that's kind of bad for two reasons, right? One is in downturns, capital dries up, and, and you're not really sure, you know, where, where is that innovation dollars going to come from? And two, it's more aligned with kind of the patient objectives of venture. These mm -hmm. startups take seven to 10 years to be able to grow, and, uh, and even when they do grow, you're seeing $10 million, you know, in, in growth over five years. You know, company leaders are like, you know, I operate business units that are hundred million or a billion exactly. dollars. Exactly, yeah. Right? You need to wait for those long-term gains. And so investing at a capital rather than balance sheet helps to create a better sense of alignment and make sure that the CE CFO doesn't wake up one day and say, oh, no more, right? <laughs> right, right. No, that's great. So I, I want to drill down just a little bit on this because this is very interesting. So when you think about maybe best practices around corporates who are innovating and either they're investing in startups or maybe spinning them up. There's always the temptation of applying corporate, corporate policies, uh, corporate cadence on things, you know, the big project plans, all that to a startup and that, that often uh, can maybe be the wrong approach. Uh, when, when you think about startups being lean and agile and moving fast and, um, trying to find product market fit. What what kind of guidance would you have to corporates um, on how they should think about um, giving those startups and that that innovation team the ability to kind of freely ideate and roam? 
Yeah. So we, we believe that when you're learning in areas that, that you have not learned before, startups being out rather than is the most efficient way to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very different muscle, right? Corporations are used to deliberate strategy. They know where they are, they know where they're going, and McKinsey or some other management consultant helps them to traverse that because they've had the experience of doing it 25, right. 50, 100 times. For startups in net new places, we don't know that path, right? And so startups, you know, go through the pivot, right? That startups are incredibly good at learning and being agile and, and pivoting. And, and that's actually called emergent strategy. There, there is a methodology to rigorously assess how you move through ambiguity as rapidly as possible. And corporate leaders aren't, aren't kind of gifted with that by the nature of, of their time. And so what we try to do is structure it as best as we can to make sure that the startup is as far from the corporation as possible. The board governance and the capital investment structure that I talked about at the beginning enable learnings to transmit back to the corporation and enable the corporate to gift the startup with the things that it does best, right? Industry Mm -hmm. access and access to capital while enabling the startup to do what it does best, which is learn and iterate without kind of um, the big co mama mama walrusing it, right? (laughs) right. So much, they kind of just squeeze them to death. Right. Yeah. So what about the scenario where um, you know, kind of corporate is investing in something that could potentially be um, M&A strategy for them maybe down the road, or again, it advances, like you, you gave the autonomous vehicle example, um, you, you know, it's something that would advance the company's corporate strategy. What kind of guidance do you have and thoughts do you have around maybe something that could be helpful to a company, but maybe isn't in that core portfolio? Is that something that how, how should corporates think about pursuing those types of startups or those type of innovation opportunities that may not be in their wheelhouse? Yeah. So, you know, beyond the core strategy, you've got adjacencies and transformative spaces, right? Net new markets, net new business models to access those. And so uh, you want to have a portfolio, obviously skewed towards the core, but a portfolio of other, other um, ways to access those more adjacent transformative types of innovation. And the way that we think about it is, uh, how imminent do you need to have access to that innovation, right? It kind of drives your strategy, right? If you need to be able to transform your business model into an adjacency in the next one to two years, well, M&A is your only option. Right. You got to be looking toward uh, uh, to having a really big funnel for M&A and engaging with companies along that way. Now, that may not be the most capital efficient option, by the way, either, right? Uh, valuations are soaring still in privately held companies, uh, but sometimes you need to pivot quickly. If you have time to learn though, we think there's a lot of ways that you can learn, right? We Mm -hmm. talked about corporate venture capital as a mechanism for uh, investing, partly to get the upside, right? Partly to have some board access and learn and and transmit learnings back to the organization and partly to be able to create strategic partnerships. Uh, And that's kind of the next most imminent, right? CBC yields great returns in the three to five year window. But if you've got seven to 10 years, I don't think there's anything better than building startups because yeah. if you will launch a fleet of startups in the adjacencies that don't currently exist, that your company can't get access to, whether because of M&A or CVC, uh, then you, you can really learn in a patient way and then have a, a slower path toward transformation, which right. is ultimately one that's a little bit more sustainable. Got it. Well, let's bring this back full circle to, to high alpha innovation. So for you guys, you you can help that corporate build that venture venture studio is is that correct that's really kind of the goal or one of the the things that you guys do yeah yeah so so, so yeah, then we, uh, yeah, yeah venture studios and then helping start startups as well gotcha yep. 
So when you, when you think about how you guys can help a company build that venture studio, then kind of everything we've talked about, you guys are there to help companies figure that out because it's, it's not necessarily easy. And kind of to your point, um, there isn't always that expertise within a company on how to do this. It, it is, it, it requires some experience and, and some skills that um, if companies were to leverage you guys, then they can move faster. Is that kind of the, the, the idea behind High Alpha Innovation? Yeah, yeah. So we, we've externalized High Alpha's venture studio model through High Alpha Innovation. We want to partner with organizations of all kinds, corporations, also universities, uh, city governments, and uh, there's a lot of different ways to use a venture studio. But yeah, the, the big idea here is if you want to create a muscle for yourself mm -hmm. where you can throw off a bunch of startups and learn to in adjacencies the best way to do that is through an external venture studio because to your point you don't necessarily have those skill sets inside right, right. It is the kind of magical chocolate and peanut butter of bringing corporations and startups together that makes it work so uh, high alpha innovation helps corporations do that good no that's great thank you thank you for that explanation so then um i want to pull one more thread kind of in this in this topic and then and then i'll kind of move move to something else but so when you think about startups, not all startups make it and, you know, not all ideas really um, net the result that you might expect in the beginning. How do you advise corporates in thinking about innovation uh, where, you know, failure in a lot of corporations is not a good thing. You know, we want to proceed to positive outcome. Um, so the idea of innovating and then maybe stopping and spinning something down is is can be a bit foreign. What what are your thoughts on on that and maybe the guidance that you would have in thinking about that? Yeah, I'd like to change the conversation a bit. I think from um, the most recent uh, corporate buzzword, which is failing fast, right? We yes. talked about trying to demystify failure. Actually, all failure stinks, right? No one likes failure. And, and for some reason, we've tried to kind of create an ethos around that. I think the, the way that I'd like to think about it instead is uh, magnitude and direction of wins. So, uh, you know, it's highly unlikely that you can pick a winner right out of 20 different startups right out of the gate. Uh, right. No one knows because actually it's 95% execution in those early days that not the strategy that is what makes those individuals succeed along the way. But instead, I think venture capitalists tend to think about magnitude of rightness. So even if you're right on one of those 20, well, it turns out that one win in 20, you know, for a venture capitalist gives you a billion dollar return and that right. makes up for the other 19 of the failures. So I think if you think about it that way, the goal is to be right really well, not right. necessarily really often. Gotcha. No, that's great. Well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, your background, uh, just, it really seems to be perfect for the, for the role that you're in. And I'd love to just get your thoughts on maybe three to four learnings from your own personal experience and kind of your journey so far that you kind of bring to your current role every day. Sure. Um, this was tough, like thinking through in advance, but I, I think <laughs> a couple of things, right? Uh, so one is empathy, right? Um, yeah. I actually was in big industrials for, for the beginning of my career. And then I led innovation for a while. Um, it's hard. I mean, it's, I, you know, yeah. it's really hard. I, I bring a huge degree of empathy for the business leaders that we partner with every single day, because building a case for innovation and then sustaining that over the decades that you need to, to be able to get wins is it, tough. Yeah. Um, 
but we've got some tricks, you know, in our, in our arsenal that we try to bring to them. I actually just wrote a blog post on, I think the, the mental fallacies that uh, business leaders kind of put in their own ways that stop them from creating the type of innovation that they need. So just helping to bring people the guidance that they need to navigate politics, to change conversations, to develop strategies and create corporate buy-in. Um, innovation is not about the new product. It's about the entire corporate decision-making process that it takes yeah. to birth that new thing. So uh, much empathy as I possibly can bring. <laughs> um, the next is human-centered storytelling. Uh, you know, I learned that way back in industrial design. We talked about the importance of designing for people. Yeah. But, um, you know, when, when you're in a meeting, everybody's exerting their opinion. Nothing kind of cuts through opinions like the truth of a customer who's actually yeah. told you a thing. And uh, helping folks to change the conversation from opinions to truth is a really important piece. But then building conviction around that truth, right? We, we don't tell our stories with respect to, um, you know, easy access to revenue or user growth because at the earliest stages, you, you can't, right? right. Instead, you need to shape it around the size of the pain point and the size of the opportunity in front of you and tell compelling narratives around that vision for growth that you're headed toward. Um, and the last is kind of around team building. You know, um, I was in jazz band when I was in, you know, uh, younger, and uh, I feel like really good innovation teams are like really good jazz bands. You've got sheet music in front of you, but no one actually ever really totally follows it. And it's the interplay between the instruments that makes for real good music. And uh, in order to do that in a company, it requires a really safe space where you can bring your whole self to work. And, and I think that that's an increasingly uh, focused on area, but something that I think, you know, innovation leaders need to lean in even more around. How can you foster intimacy in one-on-one -on -one conversations? How can you create team level vulnerability and mutual support that ultimately creates a space where innovation can thrive? Yeah. Oh my goodness. This is all gold. This is like, it, it, I love it. Love it all. Um, so let's talk about a little bit uh, around maybe some of the trends that you're seeing currently in corporate innovation. I mean, there's there's been a lot going on this year for sure. Uh, so I'm sure that's probably colored perhaps some of the trends, but would love to see um, and hear a little bit about what, what you're seeing. Yeah. Well, I mean, first, right, COVID has created this like massive rift, right, that, that, that's occurred, right, as um, uh, when you see something that you've never seen before, the only way you can lead is through values. And so people's values have been exposed very, very clearly in this period of time. And, and a couple of rifts, right? One is the idea of cost-cutting versus innovating, which helps to lead to better company growth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it's hard, right, to make those decisions. But uh, we've seen ones who are innovating to growth uh, honestly, I believe is more successful in long-term, more durable companies. Uh, and inside of companies like that, you've got folks not peanut butter spreading, right, the cost-cutting measures, but instead getting a real clear perspective on what the future of the industry is and putting their bets behind one or two resources that they think are going to win. Right. And that right. really is what innovation is about. It's kind of back in the winners that we mm -hmm. think are going to transform things. So uh, we, we've seen that. Second is corporate venture capital is on the rise. You know, uh, CBC started, gosh, 30, 40 years ago in ones and twos with folks like Comcast. And we've really seen it build out. It, you know, we believe that in the next decade, every single company is going to have some degree of corporate venture capital because it's the quality of the engagement that you have with startups that really is ultimately going to be the predictor of the long-term success of those companies. Um, and so a sub-trend to CBC is the idea of internal studios. I'm super yeah. excited to see uh, companies beginning to internalize this idea of creating muscle to throw off startups over time. And uh, obviously we, we would love to help them with that, but yeah. we also believe that 
ultimately the way that CBC has risen, studios will too over the next decade. And that will be kind of a net new form of innovation that we see. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think when you think about companies that have innovated, the ones that come to mind for me, um, when you think about this year and COVID would be, you know, the companies that pivoted to make ventilators or to make, you know, the protective gear that's needed, or maybe even just figured out a, a new way to do business where, um, you know, especially for brick and mortar, uh, you know, where they had, uh, you know, they're, they're shipping things now, they're providing a new level of customer experience. So those are some pretty amazing examples of, of companies who perhaps didn't normally move as fast as what we have seen them move, but were, um, you know, the, the tailwind of COVID and the, the requirement of COVID really caused a lot of change that, that seems to perhaps maybe have uh, a number of positives for, for those companies. So it'll be interesting to see how that, how that, uh, how those companies continue to transform. Yeah, necessity is the mother of innovation, right? And oh, absolutely. Uh, we try to create forcing functions to force companies to do it, but there's kind of nothing better than an outside force that that change, you know, that causes that huge change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so let's. I, I want to shift the gear just one more time. So, as you know, you know, we we worked together on Anvil from the early days, as yeah. as Anvil was. Uh, you know, an, an idea and really before the idea, maybe even just a concept. And, you know, we are super passionate about digital transformation uh, for the frontline worker getting, you know, off of paper specifically for workers that are in those highly dynamic uh, and hazardous environments. And when we, we look kind of across the board today, you can look at any industry and the frontline workers often are still filling out safety paperwork, you know, digital work permits, pre-work assessments, you name it, uh, largely still on paper for a lot of companies, kind of despite the fact that we have workers with, with mobile devices. So what, what kind of advice would you give to companies around digital transformation in the opportunities they have, uh, whether it's safety or something else, to get off of paper and to really put some some smart technology in the hands of the frontline workers. Sure. So one, I want to start with the frontline workers and then two on digital transformation more broadly. For, for the frontline worker, my view was shaped in my first years at Honda. Mm -hmm. They had this really compelling principle called Sangen Shugi. Uh, and part of that meant that the people at the front line know the most. You spent yes. your first three weeks at Honda on the manufacturing line assembling cars, right? I was an R&D engineer and I also know <laughs> it's just like everybody else. Um, but, it, but those are the folks who know best, right? And when you go to that source of, of people for information, you see all of this knowledge that's so rich and nuanced. And I think corporations tend to disregard that tacit knowledge, yeah. right? And unfortunately, that knowledge is by and large retiring over the, over mm -hmm. the next kind of five to 10 years. So how do you get to that? Um, at the same time, you've got a young workforce, right, coming in, huge yeah. expectations of technology. Uh, and I think companies could co-design with them in mind rather yeah. than just pushing down solutions on high. And that's what I really love about Anvil, right? Like when y'all started, you went to the workforce and you said, hey, here's an idea on a piece of paper, right? What do you think right. about this? And iterated together. And I think the most compelling uh, kind of quote back I heard, right, was um, you're the first people who ever asked us what it is that we needed, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's a very, very different way about engaging your workforce than most others are. Uh, what's unique is like from a venture capitalist perspective, like up a level, like there's so much richness of information that's captured in these folks that just can't get out and right. creating new avenues for conversation between frontline workers and corporate carpet walkers, as they say, yeah. is a huge opportunity inside of technology to unlock that communications channel. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's, um, thanks, thanks for sharing that. And I think for us, 
you know, that early design focus with that frontline worker, it has, it's truly paid off. Um, we still have tremendously high engagement. Workers like to use the product. They want to use the product. And then we get a pull within a company of why can't I have this too, which is, which is what you want. Um, but it just kind of goes back to, if you think about people first, um, then products and solutions can be adopted and really kind of drive tremendous change in ROI for companies. So, uh, so we, we continue to be passionate about that. Yeah, when you talk about digital transformation, I think that's that's the, the heart of it, right? Um, yeah. Digital transformation is a long journey for companies, right? And it's not mm -hmm. going to happen overnight, especially during downturns like this. But to prioritize one or two things that give incredibly high ROI that your workers are clamoring for and don't want to give back and that have a really high rate of capital return, right? So six months of I invested and now I've got ROI, yeah. I think really smart innovation leaders are spending their chips on the fast opportunities for transformation, as well as the balanced long-term ERP integrations. Right, right. No, that makes total sense. Yeah. And I think today you, you really have to be thinking about the frontline workers for all the reasons that you mentioned, whether it is because we've got, you know, retiring, uh, very smart and expert workforce, um, the fact that you know, we have technology and the capability of really kind of changing that experience for the, for the frontline worker and capturing all that rich data. Um, and then, you know, the COVID has really kind of forced companies, you have to really think about, you know, gathering information on a piece of paper doesn't make sense anymore when, uh, you know, you maybe can't get that paper and you don't have a system for that and, and you need this real-time information. So lots of, lots of opportunities that present themselves and lots of some reasons for, for companies to move. So, um, all right, so, so last question. And we think about innovation, I'm sure with all of your experience, you probably have a vision for where you would like to see innovation go and, and maybe a wish list for what you would like to see in your lifetime. What 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 would you like to see happen and, and why is it important? Sure. I, I think when I got into innovation, um, it was really out of, out of my own pain points, right? Like the, the poor UX of products and process just, just drives me nuts. And I think that's kind of me and my own personality type, right? <laughs> But as I, as I started to look around, I think that poor UX, intentional or unintentional, usually unintentional, right? Um, mm -hmm. It robs people of their most precious resource, which is time. Yeah. And it, it's a real shame to me to watch companies, mostly not through poor motivations, just lack of intentionality to slowly eke out at, uh, other people's time. And yeah. worse, I think actually the most poorly designed experiences disempower the poor and marginalized in our society. Mm -hmm. If you've ever tried to take public transport from one place to another, you will know exactly how bad <laughs> yeah. and processes are. So in some ways, I just want to help to elevate the value of what design is, right? The capital D design, the elevation of intentional choices that go into the creation of product and process. And innovation thereby is just a mechanism for helping those designs to reach the world, mm -hmm. whether that's through new corporations, whether that's through brand new startups, uh, you know, inside or outside the company. But I believe that inherently there's a scalability of for-profit business models that really can enable people to affect the world in, in more sustainable ways than perhaps other business models have in the past. And so I'd really, really like to see, uh, you know, the, the, the next level up, which is not just how do we help bring a product to market efficiently or software to market or a new business model to market, but how do we rethink society's most intractable problems by creating new business models that are meant to serve um, everybody, right? The 99% of society. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's, that's fantastic. I am, I am reminded uh, with our conversation today, how incredibly smart and insightful you are. I always love talking to you. 
I always learn something new and, and feel like I need to go look, get the, 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 the thesaurus to, to look at some of the big words you use. So thank you. Thank you so much uh, for the time today. Really enjoyed our conversation uh, as, I, as I always do. Yeah, always enjoy our time together, Robin. Thanks so much for having me.